Okwe Osadebe from his latest album Ibo Amaka. Ibo is beautiful. I'm Josh Corine. And I'm Banning Air. And I'm Mukwai Wabesiolwe. And this is Planet Afropop. Ah, George. Oui. Tell us more about Okwe. Okwe is the son of the fantastic Chief Stephen Osadebe, who was a fabulous musician. Oh my goodness. And he is the one we're going to talk about today. Chief Stephen Osita Osadebe, yeah, we once saw him open up for King Sonia Day in New York City. It was a fantastic show. But tell us about Chief Stephen and Okwe, his son, and about Igbo High Life. Well, High Life was created, of course, in Ghana, and it moved all over West Africa and took over Nigeria. And when it reaches Igbo land, it changed it. And perhaps one of the creators, if you want, was somebody you know, Prince Nico Mbaga and the Oriental Brothers. Mm, right. They gave it a little oomph, let's put it this way, because I love high life because it's very smooth. It's a traditional Africa, you know, very soft, very elegant. Very elegant. Very elegant. So, you know, you go in these bars where they play that music, it smells good, it's fresh, and the music is too good, too good, too good. And the dancing is very suggestive. A little bit like you have in Kinshasa when they had the Roomba, where women and men, when they dance, it hardly moved. Very smooth. That's right. It's got this beautiful lilting melodies as well. Tell us about the connection between this Igbo high life and the Biafran War from 1967 to 1970 that basically was like a ethnic cleansing in Nigeria. How did the music sort of emerge out of that situation? Well, the music and certainly Chief Stephen Osadebe uh, was one of the main propagator of that type of music and used it uh, to alleviate the pain of the people. That's why they called him the doctor of hypertension. Yeah. You know, which which has something that I really love because they would listen to the music of uh, Chief Stephen Osadebe and, you know, it would smooth out the problems that they have. But Oku is going to talk about it in a few minutes. You know, we did a show about the Niger Delta where we focused on another of the big figures of Igbo High Life, which was Cardinal Rex Jim Lawson. And, you know, what was interesting before the war... Igbo High Life was the most popular music in Nigeria. It was the thing. And the war forced a lot of the musicians to return to Igbo land. During that time, Juju rose up and Afrobeat was on the way. And High Life never quite had the same stature, but it also never went away. Okwe is good evidence. So where is he now? Where does he live now? Okwe lives in Connecticut. Oh, he's my neighbor. Yeah, he lives in Connecticut. Where did you interview him, by the way, Georges? Well, you know my friend Eme Awa, who has a show on uh, WOWD, Wowdy Radio in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Wowdy Radio in Tacoma Park, yes. And I frequently go there because, you know, we have a good time together. This guy is amazing. He always has these guests that you cannot believe. And actually, 
he received this program from Nigerian television called The Flatmates. And they say, oh, we have to have a party and we're going to invite one of the big stars of Afrobeats. And the guy says, well, you know, uh, it's going to cost us millions. Another one says, oh, but how about inviting Chief Stephen Osita Osadebe? So the other one answer, what is that now? Well, how about his son, Okui? Ah, now that's an idea. And that gives the idea of calling Okui, and then we put on our Sherlock Holmes cap, and suddenly, of course, the manager of Okui calls. And that's how it happened. Okay, so I am ready to hear Okui. Okay. Yes. How are you, doctor? I am doing great. How about you? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you got to be good. You're here with us, so... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just near your uh, domain. I meant to come and see you, and I said, ah, he's going to give me some foo-foo that I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) Foo-foo is good. It's good. It's good for the soul. It's good for the body and soul. I prefer pepe soup. Oh, Ah, ah, exactly. now you're talking. Yes, yes. Now you're talking. You're gonna have that. You're gonna have jollof rice too. Well, jollof you can have too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Cameroon. We don't eat jollof. We eat ebibolo. Ebibolo. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. We love Cameroon pepper. My mom can make soup without Cameroon pepper. <laughs> oh, good. You know my father's song was Sunday or Wednesday. Uh-huh. The original recording from 1984. The lead guitarist of Osundi Owendi and Makojo and People's Club from 1980 and a lot of the songs is Johnny Ebonga, a Cameroonian. Uh-huh. Yes, the lead guitarist, yeah. Johnny Ebonga. That's a great place to start, really, to have this conversation because I'm fortunate to be born into that yes. family. But the place you grew up was also very musical. It must have been very enriching for your soul to hear your father's music, but also step out of your domain and then be surrounded by all this music and activity and creative yes. people from every part of Africa, really. Yes. What was that like? This is what life is about. You know, spread your wings and embrace what the current environment brings to you. You wake up in the morning and whatever you wake up to, that's what you have to work with. At the same time, keeping your heritage, keeping your background. And this is what I love about music. Here in America, a lot of my friends are actually Latinos. I actually used to teach people how to dance salsa. I was in a documentary that a guy from, he's American, but from Panama. And his father played bass for Arsenio Rodriguez from the Palladium era in New York City. This guy, his father lived here in Connecticut. They grew up in Connecticut. And then he came into the salsa community and he wanted to do a documentary about the history of salsa and mambo. And then he met me at a club in New Haven. So he got me involved in the project. And then one day he ran across the internet, he ran across one of my father's songs called Ebunam from 1972. 
And then he sent me an email. Do you know this song? I saw your name and he says your father's name on it. Is that your father? And I said, yes. And I was like, and then he said, can I get the permission to use the music on the documentary? And then I went ahead and gave him the permission and he used it on the documentary because it sounded like a Cuban-American music, like a Cuban musician mm-hmm. piece yes, of the song. So he thought it was actually Cuban and like, no, that's a typical African Nigerian that played that song in the beat and everything. So Latin Americans are mostly my friends because when I started dancing salsa, I would be dancing, they would be speaking Spanish to me and I'll be like, I don't complain, I don't understand. I'd be like, but you're just dancing. Your father being the Chief Stephen Osita Osadebe was a very, very important musician at a time when music was one of the most important societal tools. Yes. From the perspective of coming out of, first of all, the colonization era and then the Civil War era in Nigeria. So music became a very important tool to unite the country. And your father's music is loved across the country. I've spoken to people of every single ethnic group in Nigeria. And I don't hear any other high-life musician of Igbo extraction as often as I hear your father's name. Yes. I'm glad that you raised this point. I went to a function one time. When I said that, one man stood up and said, that is true, because it was in their era, right after the Civil War. My father was there before, way before the war. But after the war, nobody had anything to start up with. Don't you think that it's a phenomenon about Africa? Because in the Congo, we had the same thing. To try to reunite the country after all this mayhem of uh, civil yes. war, the problems. And the yes. musicians step in and then pow. They just say, guys, this is our country. We have to get together. Absolutely. And my father has specific songs. He sang, and then uh, Usuev, another song that he sang says, let the war not come anymore. Uh, because when the war came, mom will run, and dad will run the opposite direction, and their children are running, chasing after their mom on one direction. We don't want that to come again. You know, war is evil and stuff. Yeah, and then a lot of the song is like, Nigeria, Kaiji, Kota. What's going on in Nigeria today? These are the things that he envisioned in the 80s.
said we didn't have any CD. It was just the LP. It yeah. was the LP records, you know. On the other side of the album, the back side of it is Nigeria, Kanyi where he said, Nigeria is your kunani gofu. Yes. So the meaning is, Nigeria, let us come together. Let us come together. They were noticing that it was fractioning. Nigeria was gradually breaking yeah. apart. Sonio Kusun was another legend yeah. that sang his song, which were Nigerian. So the, those legends, they were there at the time, and they were seeing this, and they were sounding the alarm. And yes. then the young musicians at the time mandators. Nigeria! special place in Nigerian music. But my question to you is, as you were developing as a musician, you were surrounded by other traditional sounds. How did all that influence you or even influence your dad? Oh God, that influenced me a lot. When I was young, my grandfather enrolled us into traditional cultural dance group. So every weekend, we would leave the city and travel back to Atani our hometown, and we will stay with our grandparents and our aunt. As soon as we come in, you know, if we need to eat, we eat, and then we go straight to the practice, to the dance rehearsal. For me, I've been dancing for my father prior to that. I'm talking about nine years old, eight years old, but I've been dancing for my father from like seven to six years old. And then in the village, we have the age groups. So we will go and learn one cultural dance Oh, come on, I can't even begin to think of all the names. So we did one. We went, we got the people that knew how to play it from our neighboring town. And they came in, they taught us, we learned it, and we started playing it. If you listen to my album, that song, Kosiyeme, Kosiyeme has two songs that are joined together. So when you listen to Kosiyeme, at, at the end of Kosiyeme, 
immediately another song called Egunle Chansoli. When you hear that song and you have an Igbo from Eka Kwale, Aniocha, Anioma, cultural dance that I learned with my age group and I started playing it traveling all over Eastern Nigeria. By the time I get out of high school, we do what we call annual return. They will have an organized committee I have all the villagers and every village we do a soccer tournament, village playing against village. My father has the cup. Whoever that wins it, the tournament wins the cup and they whatever comes with it. And they're all the masquerades and all the things that goes with it. That's when I started this. You know, there was a man from my town. He had a terrible accident. So my dad was there to perform with his band to celebrate his Thanksgiving. I came there and my father's musicians were sitting there performing. And I asked them, where's my dad? He said, oh, he's upstairs in the building with the celebrant. I said, okay, now play me this song. And I'm actually full. They started playing it. <laughs> Took the microphone and I started singing. <laughs> And then my father had the voice and he immediately knew, okay, that's not his musicians, Uyibo would normally sing. But he was hearing that voice, he knew it has to be one of his kids. So he came out to the terrace of the building. He came outside and then he saw and he was okay. And then he conducted the band from there and everybody just proud, just, oh my God, everybody just seeing him out conducting the band while I was singing. Everybody just started shouting, chief, chief for Sanqua, Sanqua. By the time I was done singing, my younger brother came along I handed the microphone to him, he sang. When he was done, my older brother came in, he handed the microphone to him, he sang, and as soon as he was done, my father came in. The crowd was just... And that's how we started. All we do is, when he's rehearsing with his band, we sit around and we learn. Okay, this is very refreshing, you know why? Because 
most of the time in Africa, if the son wants to go into music, they say, get out of here. You're... He did it to us. <laughs> really? I thought I did it. When we were in elementary school, we were in elementary three. I was in elementary three. My brother was in elementary five. And my father said, hell no, you go to school, study, go and read your book. Go and... <laughs> <laughs> You know, and then, and then I knew I had the king of playing drums, conga, African drums, conga and stuff. So the conga guy, Christopher, would call me on the side and he would give me clues and he would teach me and stuff. But my father didn't approve of it. He, he wasn't having it. He's like, go to school, go to school. Until high school, when we were in high school and then we started doing it. And then that's when he said, okay. And then he was proud of you. Yeah, absolutely, yes. So proud. Oh, yes, absolutely. And then he wouldn't travel without taking my elder brother. You know, at that point, I was playing, like you asked me the question earlier, I would play Ekobe music. And then I allowed my elder brother to just focus on my father's music. So we were doing those two different music as we kept growing up, going to university and all that stuff. But every time when we came to America, my brother opens up for my father, my late elder brother. He's late now, but he was the one that opens up for my father. of how you select, you know, your father had a range of subjects he dealt with. What's guiding you today? You know, you finished an excellent album. You, know, you had uh, eight or seven songs in this album. You're working on a new yeah, album. Songs. Yeah. So what's guiding you with this new project that you're working on? It's rooted in what I saw my father do. At some point in my father's life, they started calling him Doctor of Hypertension. Oh, Doctor of Hypertension. <laughs> I love that. That is for real. As we were growing up, you know, we didn't really understand that. But at some point, people began to say to us, you know, when they are going through financial hell, grief, or whatever problem they find themselves into, there is always that song that they will hear my father sing. And they feel like my father is talking to them personally. That song helps them heal. It saturates their heart. It calms their feelings down, their blood pressure down. Then they keep going back, listening to that, and they want to listen to more of my father's other song. And then that's why all of a sudden, again, came into the press, Doctor of Hypertension. That's how they adopt that name for him. I knew my father, everything was a concept. I'm not saying this like bragging. My father is one of the most prolific songwriters. Nigeria, yeah. Africa, yeah. even the world. Anything and everything was a concept for him. Musicians will release one album a year. My father releases three a year. That is why he is just that much more accepted in that high life genre. Oh my God. 
I can't remember how many times I see my father in a week. A quick reminder, you're listening to Planet Afropop's conversation with Nigerian musician Okwi Osadebe. Here's M.A. Awa. As the heir to this musical craft, you say, of course, you started originally dancing for your dad, corporate Osadebe, musical gurus for a long time. Obviously, it came from your dad. Yes, my grandfather called Dancing Feather because of his dancing skills. As we speak right now, my younger sister, you know, Wando, she was also dancing for my father while we were in Nigeria. And even here in America, when we turn around the U.S., my sister, her kids right now, they are dancing here in America. It runs in the blood. And I hope one day my son will get in on it. My most important motivator is keep my father's legacy going. But your style is a little bit different, isn't it? From what I understand, you're more chastising the, uh, the new government in Nigeria. Uh, in politics, my father, you cannot be running for any political office out of my local government. My father fought and we carved out our own local government. Uh, you name them. After Atompera era, then Obasanjo came in and then the Shagari. They come to my father's house, say to him, I am running for Anambra State. And then my father, being a Democrat, respects him. And all the delegates, everybody, they come to the meeting to his house and then he would tell them, this is what I think is a better candidate for us to do. And when my father says that, that's the end of it. Back in the days in Nigeria, we used to do open ballot. That means you come in, they will put posters of the candidates and then people will line up in front of whoever they want to vote for. And then my father will stand and everybody will be like, oh, nice. Oh, we're in the wrong line. This is where Papa is standing. We, we, <laughs> we need to speak. My father was a political stalwart, but he refused to run politics himself because he doesn't want to meddle into a corrupt part of it. But he would encourage people and spend his own money to sponsor them, to go and bring back dividends. As we speak right now, people have been calling me to come back and take over my father's position in politics because all the people that he put in politics are no longer providing what they should be providing for the constituents. So we are correct to assume that you are taking not just a conciliatory perspective. You sound like you want more action. Am I correct? Of course, we need it. We need transformational leaders not transactional leaders. What we have in most of these countries in Africa today are transactional leaders. Okay, do X, Y, Z for me, and I'll do ABC for you. We don't need that. If the leader of Dubai could transform Dubai under a few years, when they had nothing, 
other than desert lands. And money. Exactly. And they were able to transform desert lands into this kingdom that it has become. And Nigeria that has had all this oil, all these years, 60-something years, and we have nothing. That's the pain that I was pouring out in that song, The Zubudu. smart and for that elegant look always say matador let's talk about compositions there was a lot of heartwarming feeling listening to your father's own compositions as well so i want to ask you about some of the songs for example matador matador is my father's original recording Wow, how did I know that? <laughs> that was from back in the 70s, early 60s, 70s. My promoter, Nande, requested, but I do it instrumental. And then that's how we, me and my band, we re-recorded it, we played it live in his studio. It was actually original composition of my father. Fighter. Yeah, the bullfighter. Do you know, oh, remember what his original is? This is how the name came up. My father has a very good friend who produces fabrics, clothings, cottons that we use in the house over the windows and doors and things like that. And my dad's friend was a major distributor of that company's material in Nigeria. That's how the name Mataro came to be the title of the song. Everybody yeah. that knows my father loves that music. They cherish that song. your dad's style 
I think the one that is closest in terms of just the way your dad packaged this music, I think is still Igbo Amaka. Igbo is beautiful. Yes. Igbo culture is beautiful. Igbo people are beautiful. And Ndoka, remember Ndoka is my father's remake. Onye Ndoka Nechuku. Yes, yes. That was from my father's album of 1975. I added different lyrics in addition to what my father did and I changed the horn lines a little bit. That's one of my father's classic from his, uh, one of his platinum albums from 1975. <laughs> Sadebe's remake of his father's song, Ibo Amaka. Ibo is beautiful. It's also the title track of Okui's new CD. Connecticut. 
how do you record all this? I mean, the musicians are not just people that you find in the, the street or whatever. <laughs> you know? Not at all, not at all. We do our recordings in Nigeria. I have Americans that I used to play with over the years, but now that I'm working with my new promoters, I do my recording in Nigeria. If I need to travel to Nigeria to meet with them, I do that. So I you can, travel there? Yeah, absolutely. I can just send them materials and tell them this is what I want. And then we, just like we're sitting here now on the Zoom, I will be on the Zoom with them and I will demand everything that I want. And the good thing about the young guys that I'm working with is they make a living off of my father's music. They play for other musicians and everywhere they go to perform, they are playing my father's music. Did they bring a little different flavor to it? Oh, absolutely. Which they know. <laughs> now they are, they know, they are so fond of me now because they learned so much from me that they began to realize, okay, why my dad was so special. And then some of them have their own bands. My guitarist has his own band. He can go and perform for his own. My recording engineer has a band of his own. But when I came in with my work ethics and the demands on what I want every instrument to sound like, what I require from the guitars. I use three guitars in most of these songs you hear. Why do you need three guitars? It's about the feelings. If I can feel it deeply in my spirit, those guitars are another way of me speaking without saying a word. So I'm speaking to my audience through the first guitar, like Ibamaka. We listen to Ibamaka, there are three guitars in it. With the first one that started it, and then the second guitar and the third came in. The second reading yeah. goes, Tana, Tana, Nana. And then, then the lead guitar comes in with the wah-wah pedals and all of yeah. that. Then the percussion, same thing. Everything the drummer is doing, I am on top of it. That's how I learned it from my father. The horns, the same way. I arrange the horns. So I tell them, this is what I want you to sound like. This is what I want it to be. And then they get to work and then we practice it out to get it. One of the things that I think would be very excellent to hear from you is a description of what your father's life performances were like and what your performances today. Because I remember back in the day, those events were highly charged. Even before the first note was played, there was so much anticipation. People are not there to, you know, twerk. You know, they're there to really loosen up. You know what I mean? Losing up and relieve yourself and, and enjoy every bit of the songs and the entertainer that you have, whether it's my father or any other musician, absolutely. That is the, the life that we find ourselves in today. In my own understanding and the way that I want to carry it along is that I bring back some of those people coming in to actually listen to good old-fashioned high life music with a message. I don't want to be on the stage thinking about some ladies' bottom. No, my lyrics has to have a message. So I don't want to go to that far where I can be so vulgar in my lyrics in order to get follower. No, I want to stay clean as much as possible. Look at the high life musicians that are most popular today. Most of their 
beats are now much more cultural than ever before. Most of his songs are much more cultural than ever before. What do you mean by that? Instrumentation and the beats. You could hear it easily. When they play with Ogene, the big cowbell, yeah, the big double one, that they use it, and then the native drums, the wood have leaves, and they sing it. So what is happening is, while we were chasing all this Western culture and everything, people are now getting sensitive to that. In a way that it's all for the interest of promoting our culture and our heritage. Talk to us a little bit about the new album. Most importantly, I focus on two basic things when I do my music, which is the background. If I don't get the background, I don't even begin to do anything else. So the background is typical high life, and um, the lyrics dictates what I do next in terms of the brass instruments and where the lead guitar goes. It will be as close to my current album as can be, you know, but all new songs, all different songs. I have uh, one or two of my father's songs from back in the days. He recorded that in 1973 in London. So I'm remaking one or two of them. And then the rest are my own compositions. It's all the same thing, bringing good message to people, singing about life. Whatever that life experience brings, I use it as a concept and then elaborate on it lyrically. George, you know, just did a show, Music Along the Rivers of Africa. Okay, what do you think the influence of River Niger was on you as a musician, you know, growing up in that area, and maybe in general on the whole industry of uh, music in that Omicha side, where your father recorded and lived. That relationship has always been with every African musician that ever lived. Because that River Niger and River Nile were the easiest transportation routes that we had back in the days. There wasn't paved roads like that that people have to travel to. So you have to go by the river. River Nile, River Niger, Congo River, all of this. People were able to travel and interact doing businesses, trading by barra or whichever way they were doing it at a point. We listen to all this beautiful high life music, cha-cha music. There was this man at the radio station in Mami Chafi time called Bunangayo Kafo. He was keen with bringing us all this beautiful music from the Congo, 
in Nigeria, I don't know anybody that doesn't love and enjoy when they come on. And they influenced everybody. My father has a song. If you listen to Ibunam, you can see how Ibunam relates very well to old school mambo, what we call Korende salsa. This yeah. is why when I came here, it was very easy for me to get into salsa, dancing it. And when I formed my band here in America, I met them through watching them playing salsa music. And it was easy for us to get along. We used to be sitting around watching my father performing and then some men would come and they would be dancing these steps. When you see the dance steps, you know plainly that's not Nigerian dance steps. So after I came to America, it dawned at me. Oh, wow. What these people were doing back in the days were actually kind of salsa. And I was like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> and then I got involved in it and I just picked it up like that. Before I knew it, I started teaching people how to do it. It has a lot of influence. Remember, high life music is originally from Ghana. So the same way, through trades, through traveling, mingling, the Western Nigeria, Eastern Nigeria, Southern Nigeria, everybody got in it. You know, now Nigeria are mostly in it, but we all know that Ghanaians are the godfathers of Highline. My father came in after the war and influenced his style, where we use a lot of wawa pedals, the horns, and then the percussion. It's got its own flavor, yes, for sure. Yes. I mean, I can listen to a song on the radio in Nigeria, and I know straight up that's my father's song. No, I spend a lot of time listening to Nigerian stations, trying to follow up what goes on there. Comes up and I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> I know immediately what song it is that someone just, you know, <laughs> copyrighted. Or, um, is it a heavy burden? Is that something that's heavy on your mind? Or for now, are you just focused on doing some more work? Mostly I'm focused on doing some more work. But it is on my mind because constantly I get calls. People are bringing them to my knowledge. Constantly people will call me and bring it to my attention. I don't have time spending that much on the social media. So I get videos sent to me all the time. I get phone calls and I get messages forwarded to me all the time. And then when I do have time to go through those messages on my phone, and then I see those things, sometimes it bothers me. But I don't want to distract myself from what it is I'm doing, focusing on, by paying attention to that. What I do sometimes, if I see certain information that I feel like some actions needs to be taken, I forward it to a lawyer and I say, what do you think of this? Trust me, I have a million and one of them. Because I can only imagine that at the heir who is concerned with growing discography, because the template, if you want to call it that, has been so long as we're talking 1970s. Nigeria started playing in 57. If you go back to, I don't know if you know about Zilong here, Nigerian trumpeter. If you listen to his song, Patrice Lumumba, the tribute to the late Patrice Lumumba, the leader of, um, isn't it Congo? Congo, yeah, yeah. That's my father singing. Yes, go to the internet and Google Zil Onya Patrice Lumumba. When you hear that song, that is my father singing the lead vocal there. Zil approached my father when he saw the talent in him with the vocal, and he's a, one of the greatest trumpeters Nigeria ever had. 
So he called my father to team up with him back in the days. Most of the songs from Zilonia was my father is the lead vocal, singing in that. That brings me to my next question. Do you know why your father didn't settle in Lagos? Because almost all the big high-life kings of that era, as you well know, Lagos is still the biggest musical market there is. Absolutely. Do you know why your dad didn't settle in Lagos? Yes, it was my grandfather. Ah. You know, back in the days when you tell your parents, I want to be a musician, they're like, oh, Lord, <laughs> we're about to lose him. <laughs> you know, who makes a career out of music? So his parents were the same way. But my father knew he had that calling. He knew he couldn't survive doing anything else other than music. And immediately, other musicians started noticing that talent and began to engage him. You know, Stephen Amici was the first one that actually embraced him and said, okay, come, come and stay with my band and sing. You know, I'll give you opportunity whenever we perform, you sing. And then he would play maracas for him. He came in as a maracas player, but when he saw my father's talent, he could sing. And then Zilonia noticed the talent and they started going after him too. So when my father moved to Lagos, my grandfather was not happy about it. Well, after my father married my mom, met my mom in Lagos, and they get married. They had their first child, their second child. So my grandfather said, you are becoming too famous. I'm worried about you. I need you to stay close to me, move back to the East. And that was it. That's how he stayed there all through. My dad was so good. Everybody loved him. They had to send him to Russia to go study trade unionism to form the Music Association Union back in Nigeria, back in the days. The original founders. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. They, they decided to find someone that could travel kind of a law school in the way you led trade union. And they said, OK, we'll send him. And then he went to Russia and studied trade unionism and came back. Okuyi, we are talking about your father, but I'm missing a little bit uh, Okuyi here. How is that little guy from Nigeria, I mean, the son of a giant in the music, ends up in Connecticut <laughs> and oh. develop himself? That's quite a story there. Oh, absolutely. You know, knowing your roots, knowing what you want, knowing what you stand for, what you believe in, and believing in yourself. Well, we came here, me, my dad, all of us, you know, my dad's band, 94, taught all, all over the U.S. But I have a sister who, uh, right after out of high school, my father sent her to America to go to college. And then the college she picked to go to happens to be in Connecticut. That's in the early 80s. She's been here ever since. So when my father started coming to America, you know, back and forth, because at some point my sister was like, why don't you leave, let allow my brothers to stay in America? And my father was like, okay. That's how we stayed. But after my father passed away, my elder brother has his own band. We were traveling all over the US playing. I was managing his band. And then when he passed away, I said, okay, 
Now I have to carry on the torch. We know what tradition is in Africa. Wait for your turn. How was that? Being patient. Oh my God, that is the hardest part of it. Being patient, you know, when you get an idea and you want to act on it, but other factors that needs to be put in place to get you where you want to get to are not there yet. That is the hardest part of it. The thing is just keep the faith. Continue to believe in yourself. Continue to believe in what you do. It's not that easy, I must confess. But what do you do? I cannot run faster than my shadow. You say that in African language. What is the next step for Okwe? Now we are focused on the album. Get the album done, put it out there, and then get the promotion going for that album. And then travel around them. We're getting calls from Europe and Africa. We're just holding down on it until I'm done with the album. Congratulations, Okui. Thank you. Appreciate you guys, you know, doing this because this message needs to be told. You need to preserve that high life in its originality. Even till this day, if you go to Nigeria, high life is still a major, major song, even though that they are transforming the high life and adding it Congo beats. That's the beauty of ingenuity of us Africans. To conclude this interview, if you find some good pepper soup out there, <laughs> one with the ox foot. Now we're in the summertime over here now, so it's too hard for pepper soup. <laughs> so maybe during the winter. <laughs> But in Nigeria, they are in the cold weather. Now they are enjoying pepper soup because it's the rainy season. Yeah, so maybe we need to take a trip to Nigeria. That's right. All right, George Colline and M.A. Awa with Okwi Osadabe. What a great interview, George. That was really it nice. It was fun. It was really fun. Brilliant. <laughs> I just love Igbo aesthetic. I just love their whole vibe, Igbos. Sorry, but they are definitely game changers. They have been game changers forever. Love the Igbo people. It's true. You hear it right away. That rhythm, that musical expression that Igbo voices have, it just stands right out. Yes, it does. Banning, you went to Nigeria in that region and you did a fabulous, fabulous series that is still available on Afropop.org. Yeah, Hip Deep in Nigeria. And that was the episode about the Niger Delta with focus on Rex Jim Lawson. And uh, yeah, very interesting history in that one. I was shooting a television series, Search for Common Ground in Nigeria, and I land in Port Harcourt. And I can't even walk. The sidewalks are perched because there's so much oil that it's seeping through the uh, grass. It's a huge, dark story there down in Portacot. Still unfolding today, the legacy of that oil. We do tell that story in that show. Ah, uh, well, it's nice to know that at least they had beautiful high-life music. <laughs> yes. To uh, address their hypertension. Take off the edge. <laughs> yes, definitely. To stop their hypertension. Well, 
Thanks for listening to another edition of Planet Afropop. As always, we want to hear from you. Write to us and tell us what you think of the podcast. Remember to send your comments to info at afropop.org with the subject line, Planet Afropop. And if you love what we're doing, show your love with a little support. Even though our annual year-end appeal is officially over, you can still help. Go to afropop.org and click Donate. And before we go, let me remind you that our first edition of Camp Afropop, three days of musical performances from Natu Kamara, Pakiti Kumalo, Pedrito Martinez, Yakuba Sisoko, Samba Mapangara, and Jake Blunt. Also, interactive workshops, jam sessions, and late night dance parties. Join me and the Afropop team in the warm embrace of the 100-acre Full Moon Resort in the Catskill Hills of New York State. The camp takes place May 28 to the 31st, 2024. Visit campafropop.org for more details. Planet Afropop is a production of World Music Productions. Support for Planet Afropop comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our founder and executive producer is Sean Barlow. Our lead podcast producer is Banning Air. Our chief audio engineer is the great Michael Jones and additional engineering for this edition by Banning Air at Lion Song Studios in Middletown, Connecticut. Our director of uh, development and co-host is, you just heard her, Mukwe Wabesiolwe. Banning Air and Sivian Biggs edit our website, afropop.org. And our director of new media is Sivian Biggs. And I'm Georges Collinet. And I'm Banning Air. And I'm Mukwe Wabesiolwe. Until next time, Musiele Fo. Mangaka. Y'all come back now. Y'all come back. <laughs> 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 <laughs>